it's a podcast, I guess. Uh, maybe a podcast can be a scam, I guess, depending on how you look at it. Uh, but that's oh, funny. yeah, there's lots of scams. Yeah. Podcast scams. But <laughs> yes, I know. So, yeah, hello, it's me. Yo, welcome to my summer layer. I'm your host, Sammy. When was the last time you made a mixtape, Yunan? This episode is oddly dedicated to Peter Quill, who you know as Star-Lord in Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy, played charmingly well by Chris Pratt. For if you've seen the first Guardians movie, Peter Quill is still listening to his Walkman in 2014, across this vast and strange universe. His most popular cassette is the mixtape Awesome Mix Volume 1, a collection of 80s hits. What Guardians of the Galaxy does well, shout out to James Gunn, is it captures the final songs Peter listens to on his Walkman. For this episode, welcome poet Michael Robbins to my summer layer. His poetry collection, Walkman, oh yeah, Walkman, it's like, you know, my rambling introductions are starting to make sense, does indeed have a poem called Walkman. And it has this passage. Walkman by Michael Robbins ends with these lines. Today, I want to write about how it's been almost 20 years since I owned a Walkman. Just think, there was a song that I didn't know would be the last song I would ever play on a Walkman. I listened to it, and it was just like any old song. Because it was. For any 80s kids like me, that loss is sharp right in my gut like when I eat Taco Bell. Watching Guardians of the Galaxy, I instantly understood why the Sony Walkman mattered so much to Peter Quill. Music is a connective tissue for our lives. We live through music, and music lives through us. And you'll hear me and Michael talk about music and talk about poets. William Butler Yeats, to Bob Dylan, to Little Wayne, to Chuck D, to Arthur Rimbaud, to The Rolling Stones, to The Smashing Pumpkins, and like all the best KTEL records, so much more. Considering Michael Robbins' poetry book collection is called Walkman, that totally tracks. I mean, what else do you listen to on a Walkman? Our conversation begins not in this Marvel Cinematic Universe, but rather in the Star Trek world, and Captain Picard's favorite hot beverage. Sound, the final frontier. My summer lair is an enterprise, a pop culture voyage with a continuing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new creators and celebrate established producers, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now here is your host, Sammy Yunan. Yeah, just let me know when you're rolling. I'm going to make some tea. Oh, okay. What kind of tea are you making? This really isn't a part of the interview, but I'm curious because I drink a lot of tea as well when I write. Well, I drink tea. Oh, great. Hot. Oh, classic. Okay. Do you find that the tea helps with the writing as well or helps with the thinking? Um, yeah, no, I just always, uh, I liked it when Captain Picard would walk into the room and say to the replicator, tea, Earl Grey, hot. <laughs> and so that's why I started drinking Earl Grey, but now I actually really like it. Uh, but I don't know, does it help? You know what used to help is cigarettes, but I had to quit smoking, so... Cigarettes help, man. Nicotine, that's that's a great drug. I don't care what anybody says. But it was just taking too much of a toll on my body. So, 
right? Nicotine's a great drug. That should be like a T-shirt. Yeah, well, it probably is. Mm-hmm. That that covers your like tea journey, but we're gonna focus on your poetic journey. And your poetic journey, it started with it was sparked by uh, William Butler Yeats. Uh, yeah, that was uh, I. As far as I can tell, I wasn't. I mean, look, I don't remember. I was a teenager, but I I do remember two encounters with poetry. And I can't remember exactly which order they occurred in, but uh, one was that this is a little embarrassing, but I was I was really into Bob Dylan. I was into Blonde on Blonde all the time, and uh, Rolling Stone had some interview with him, and he was talking about um, Dylan Thomas and and Rambo, and I had, I knew the names, but you know who reads who reads Dylan Thomas or Rambo and when they're in junior high or whatever. So I asked for their collected poetry for Christmas. Uh, I still have the Rambo. I, I don't know what happened to the Thomas. I mean, I have, I have Thomas, but it's a, it's a new, newer edition. I lost the one that I got then, but well, I sold it when I needed uh, cigarette money in college or something, <laughs> but I have the Rambo. But then also around the same time, I was watching some TV movie on, uh, well, on TV. I wish I could, I, you know, I've, I've tried to, it's impossible to Google, like, movie that quotes Yates, because they, they all, many, many movies quote Yates. Yeah. Uh, so I, almost always the same Yates. The, you know, the center cannot hold. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't remember what lines. This was not, as far as I know, um, the Second Coming because I knew the Second Coming from Stephen King's uh, The Stand. That's right. Yeah. Where, um, you know, turning and turning in, a, in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falcon, or things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. Those lines are very evocative for anyone who's dealing with uh, the end of the world as King was in that novel and as we are today, but um, this wasn't that, but, but there were characters sitting around a campfire, as I recall, and one of them sort of intoned, sat, sat back and intoned some lines. And I, the first time I was ever really captivated by the recitation of verse, uh, it, 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 you know, I I hadn't even known that I was susceptible to such a um, to such an, an emotion, but uh, I was very taken by by the the way he the actor recited the lines, and I don't even remember what they said, but I I knew you know, afterwards he sort of you know the way you do after you quote something like an asshole you go Yates you know <laughs> so I knew that it was Yates and I knew who Yates was from Stephen King so. I I stole the collected poems of W. B. Yeats from uh, the high school at Cheyenne Mountain uh, Cheyenne Mountain High School Library. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I don't have that anymore. I have a different edition of the collected poems, but I kind of wish I still had that. Uh, I don't know if that's a crime. You know, it is. But uh, it's a book, though. I I think generally stealing books. It's probably in that gray area because it's intellectual food. It's like stealing food when you're poor, right? 
Well, if it took place in the 1980s, I think that, that I'm in the clear. So I'm going to go ahead and cop to it. But yeah, so that's how I that's how I got started reading poetry anyway. And let me tell you, you start reading Yeats, and you start at the beginning, you're reading like, um, which is what I did back then. You know, I didn't know, you know, who, I, I started at the beginning. That's what you did with books. Mm-hmm. So you, you know, you open the collected poems of Yeats up, and what you get is a, a song of, oh, what is that called? Is it the Song of Wandering Angus? I, I can't, I think it is, the Song of Wandering Angus. Either it's it's the opening or, or um, no, it's not the Song of Wandering Angus. That's, that's later. It's the one that goes, um, okay, let me see if I can remember some of it. Um, the wandering earth herself may be only a sudden flaming word. Oh. Shoot! Now you know. You, now you got. Now you gave me the brain fart too. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Shoot. Uh, I can't remember what's called. Damn it! I I I know that if if like. I know I'll remember the title like right after I get off of the phone. But anyway, <laughs> you know this is very different from the stuff that that. That's his early, and that stuff's beautiful. You know. Mm-hmm. The Song of Wandering Angus, the one I was thinking of, um, is also quite beautiful. The Little Silver Trout. Uh, no, let's try to remember. I used to know that one. Let's see. Um, let me see if I can remember it. The last bit. And walk among long dappled grass and pluck till time and times are done. The silver apples of the moon. The golden apples of the sun. You know that was that was that was hot shit. I was just like, damn, mm-hmm. the silver apples of the moon, and uh, you know, it's very it's very different. He you know he became of course much less sort of romantic and uh, and uh, and dreamy. He's always writing about elves and shit, fairies. <laughs> but uh, and I think the first poem I learned by heart just wandering around reciting it in my grandma's uh, pasture in Kansas was uh, The Rose of Peace by Yeats, which isn't a very well-known poem or anything, but uh, it it it, uh, it taught me, and I just said it over and over to myself. I still I could still recite it. It's, it's um, you know, that was important because it wasn't so much about what he was saying, which is uh, relatively... Um, standard romantic uh, sort of uh, dreamy um, fantasy stuff, but the the cadences were, you know, like like Resky says, I take this cadence from a man named Yeats, I take it and give it back again. That that cadence was very um, captivating to me at that time. Did that similar cadence? Was that also what attracted you to hip hop? Because I've heard you talk about Little Wayne. Oh yeah. And like there's oh, other yeah. like references in your poetry. Is that that's the cadence as well that kind of attracted you to hip hop? Yeah, man. Like the hip hop, you know, the first hip hop I knew was the eighties, you know. I'm public enemy Eric being around him. Planet Earth was my place of birth, born to be the sole controller of the universe. <laughs> that <laughs> yeah. That was just it was the same thing. I mean, it really was the same 
the same kind of effect. I think the first hip hop record I ever owned was uh, "Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back," oh, Public, Public Enemy. Enemy. Yeah, Chuck yeah. D was unbelievable as a poet in that that whole little era there in th- uh, the '80s into the '90s. Yeah, that voice, man, Chuck D in the '80s. Mm-hmm. His voice was a weapon. And is Little Wayne still in your top five? Then what happened to Little Wayne? <laughs> it's like I don't think I've listened to. Uh, I mean, you know, I'll still put on some of the stuff, but I haven't heard anything he's done since like 2013 or something. Okay, yeah. I don't know. You want my top five? Fine. All right, let's go. Let's do it. All right. Not not necessarily in any order though, because I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to have to like rank Rakim or and, and Biggie. Like. Yeah, yeah. That's a hard one, anyways. Yeah. I'm gonna say Rakim, Biggie. Uh, God, I gotta go with, I gotta go with Chuck. Mm-hmm. That's three. I'm gonna say Jay Z. Why is you there know, reluctance? With, why is there reluctance with Jay Z? Just because you you don't want to give him the spot for somebody else? No, just because I, you know, I just don't like billionaires that much. Okay. Uh. I do like Jay Z. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think he's done anything worthwhile in a while, but you got to give it up. All right. Uh, the last one. Uh, okay, number five. Number five. I want to go off off book a little bit. I'm going to say Ghostface. Fuck it. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, Ghostface Killer from Wu Tang. Yep. Mm-hmm. That guy. He's always just. Uh, <laughs> like rapping about about uh, ZD and shit, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, he has none of those guys have done anything in a long time that has, obviously Biggie hasn't, but uh, none of them has done anything, you know, I shouldn't laugh, you know, RIP. <laughs> but uh, none of them has done anything that's really captivated me. Like today, you know, I'm much more likely to be listening to the future or Kendrick or something. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, but that was my, yeah, that was my jam. Yeah, there's a big difference between being popular and being relevant, right? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and well, they're old, you know. They're like they're like me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they're, we're we're old men. Yeah. I think Jay Z's a little younger than I am. I can't remember. It's interesting because he's getting older, and so rap is generally as a genre compared to rock. He's not really known for its elder statesmen. Right, I think Jay Z's either about to hit fifty or did hit fifty, and that's pretty rare for rap music. Whereas rock and roll, nobody's phased necessarily by age, right? Like you just keep going, like the Stones, (laughs) you just keep going, right? Well, the Stones, man, that's 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 something I was thinking about, like because you you had emailed me and said, you know, why did you switch up your style, and you know, I was thinking about I'm gonna be fifty. Like what? And so I was like, what was Keith Richards doing at 50? Keith Richards at 50, it had been 15 years since the Stones had made a great record. Some people would say it had been 12, but I have to go with some girls as their last great record. Mm -hmm. You know, 50, Keith Richards is, he's still, he's still great, but you know, the Stones aren't making great records anymore. Yeah. I have friends who want to talk about Bridges to Babylon and shit. I just, you know, don't, don't, don't come at me with that. Yeah, it's again, like I said, there's a difference between popular and being relevant, right? Like, Stones can still maintain popularity, 
and they can put out quote unquote new music and it'll still sell and it'll be all right and still find an audience. But for the most part, it's not really relevant. It's not moving the needle. It's not sparking a lot of conversation. Um, it's not like that's the music that you hang on to for the rest of your life. There's certain songs that you go through life or certain albums that you kind of cling to like a life preserver uh, because that music is such has such an emotional impact. Stones are just kind of like just cranking it out now, like a factory. Yeah, well, they've been, you know, and they've been on the Budweiser tour uh, bus for whatever. Or maybe now it's, I can't remember if it's a Verizon. There's some mm-hmm. some sponsor. I'm always like, I understand if you want to play rock and roll, that's great. But, you know, how much money do you need? Yeah, Jesus yeah. Christ. <laughs> yeah, it's valid. Just start, you know, you're, you're like the Stones. You're in your, you're almost 80 just play some fucking arenas for free. Mm-hmm. Play some small bars. Like you could buy Yankee stadium like seven times over. You don't need to be charging $150 a ticket. I understand that you got a, a, a lot of overhead, but you could pay that too. Yeah. And the reason I asked you that in the email is because I noticed that a number of poems in Walkman are longer. Walkman is your latest yeah. uh, poetry collection. Walkman, of course, is a poem, uh, the first poem in the book. Uh, the Seasons is another long one. Uh, I'm talking to trucks. I just noticed that compared to like some of the shorter poems in your previous collection, Aliens vs. Predator. So was that a conscious shift or like even a goal to try and see if you can write longer poems, or is that just how they came out? Mm, you know, I've talked about this a little bit in other interviews, but I, uh, it, it was conscious... In, in the sense that I knew that I didn't want to do what I'd been doing. And so, I mean, really, if, if you look at my, I don't know, I don't know if anyone cares about this, but if you look at Alien vs. Predator and you ask yourself, what would a 180 from this style look like? Like, I think maybe long, um, unrhyming, free verse might, might do the trick. Uh, but it's also just, you know, like I said, it had been 15 years since, since some girls I'm get, I'm gonna be 50. It's just like I can't. I don't. I don't want to keep doing the same thing, you know. And also, there's there's a. It's different. Uh, I don't know. There's there's a certain. I think if you I'm trying not to not to like reveal too much about my my myself, but if if you're alive in 2021. And you're not depressed. Mm-hmm. There's something wrong with you. There's something seriously wrong with you. Sorry to all the happy people, <laughs> but if, if you're if you're not at least depressed, like maybe you're incapable of being sad. That's fine. But if you can look at at the world and not feel uh, anger and sorrow and um, despair and hopelessness, then you you know you you're you're delusional. And it was, it, it's hard. The the shorter format in Alien versus Predator allowed me to express that in a kind of sardonic and angry way. But I needed to be more. I needed I needed a form that would allow me to be more direct and um, let's say unironic. Not that there's no irony in these poems, but. Well, you know what I mean. Yeah, I do. Because what you're basically saying or suggesting is that things haven't gotten better. So if the shorter ones were like 
punk rock. One, two, three, four, Ramones, like, <laughs> two-minute or three-minute songs get in and get out. There's a lot more, like, I guess, uh, Smashing Pumpkins kind of style, melancholy and infinite sadness that kind of permeates a lot of these poems in Walkman. Okay, well, that's those are fighting words, okay. but we'll, we'll overlook it. <laughs> All right. Uh, the Smashing Pumpkins thing, or which part? Yeah, let's not compare me to the Smashing Pumpkins. There's got to be a better, you know, <laughs> come on. <laughs> I apologize then for it. But yeah, but that is basically what you're saying, though. Like, that the earlier ones had kind of like that punk fire um, sure. anger. And then there's a little bit more melancholy, I guess, in the Walkman collection. Just because things necessarily yeah. haven't progressed or gotten better. Like, we still have uh, the same environmental issues. They obviously have gotten a little worse. Uh, we still have, like you mentioned, Jay-Z being a billionaire. We still have those kind of issues uh, that are dominating and corrupting our culture. Yeah, for me, I, I, this is weird. I haven't, I haven't actually told anyone this, but for me, the, the, the pop music analog or the, the musical analog that comes to mind, and this is weird because Joni Mitchell is not one of my like top ten. You know, I, I find her a little off-putting. Um, I love, you know, you can't, you can't not love her best stuff. But probably my favorite song by her is the last time I saw Richard. And that's what I think of when I think of, like, if, if the early stuff is punk, then this stuff seems to me like the last time I saw Richard uh, was uh, uh, what does it say? Detroit? Detroit in 68 and he told me all romantics meet the same fate someday, cynical and drunk and boring someone in some dark cafe. You know, I don't drink, as any reader of Walkman knows, but <laughs> there's a real flirtation with boring someone in some dark cafe throughout those poems that is both conscious and, and also, you know, um, uh, a genuine risk that I had to take. Anytime you're writing a long poem, and I mean long, like longer than, say, six, seven pages, you're there are risks there's the risk of tedium the risk of getting bogged down the risk of of uh losing the thread you know mm-hmm. um but also the you know not the tone of those poems is for me pretty much the tone of the last time i saw richard so i think about him and and you know richard got what does what does she say uh all the housewives left up right he drinks at home most nights with the TV on and, and all the house lights left up bright. That, those lines occur to me a lot. And, and they always are juxtaposed in my mind with a scene in uh, Gatsby. I read Gatsby in high school, like everyone, and was struck by a scene that I haven't seen many people talk about, which is that Nick comes up to, comes home late one night and he sees that all of Gatsby's lights are on. And uh, Gatsby's walking on the lawn or something, and it goes up to meet him, and he says, uh, your place is lit up like the World's Fair. And Gatsby looks behind him at the house and goes, is it? I have been looking into some rooms. <laughs> I don't know if that's, that's not a direct quote, but, but that, that scene always, something about that, that scene has seemed mysterious to me. And, I've all, and then I have always connected it with those lines of, of, of Mitchell's about, Richard staying up late watching TV with all the house lights turned up bright. Something haunting there. Yeah, and that also speaks to the audience because 
the act of creation is always rooted in connection, right? So yeah, generally sure. when you're making a movie or a TV show, you're aware of the audience, especially if you're making like a comedy or something, you want to make sure that the jokes land and that kind of stuff. But is it the same thing yeah. for the for poetry? When you're writing poetry, are you aware of the audience or I guess you care then that you want to make sure that the poems are relatable? Hmm. Hmm. I don't know. I I don't know. I want to, uh, my immediate audience I'm aware of, like, uh, my, my friend, Anthony Madrid, who reads everything first, uh, I'm aware of, I'm, I'm, he gets a poem in Walkman. Yeah. Yeah. And in my other books as well. Mm -hmm. He thinks that's cute. It was his idea to change the title of that poem to to Anthony Madrid. And I did it because he's, he's a big, uh, uh, helped me in the process of revision and because he will, he will just annoy you if he, if he doesn't get his way. So I went ahead and did that. Yeah. He, in that, to, so I think he can stand in for the audience in general. Yeah. Of course you're not, does anyone really write for themselves? I mean, does, did Dickinson write for herself? I don't know. Is it, it's gotta be impossible to write without imagining. Would anyone write a poem if they were the only person on earth? I don't know. Hmm. I also don't think it's that interesting of a question, though. I gotta say, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm aware of the audience. In the the difference too, like what you're talking about as well, like the conversation you and I have been having, kind of echoes a lot of the themes in Walkman, which is like nostalgia, and it's weird because part of like we said your sadness and your frustration is because things haven't gotten better uh, politically, like with capitalism's run amok and these kind of things. And I get that part. But what about with pop culture? Like do all the changes we go through, like this book is called Walkman and we've obviously gone from like uh, the Walkman to like CD players to MP3 players, iPods and mobile phones. Like there's been a lot of changes. Yeah. Do you view those changes as necessarily progress or they like, to just kind of zip by so quickly that we don't really kind of notice them and we don't really properly mourn them at all. Oh, I don't, you know, I don't believe in progress. Some things, some things get better. There are trade-offs, except for in the case of the Discman, which was a, a, a purely horrible development. Yeah, it was, yeah. Uh, I did have a Discman. I think I had a couple of them. Uh, and, they're just terrible. You know, you got to carry CDs around with you, which is already ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And then they skip and, and, uh, yeah, they were all batteries awful. run out and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. The batteries. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think that, that there's progress. I, I don't, I, you know, I don't, I don't like, I'm not nostalgic for the Walkman in the sense that I would much rather have the, entirety of popular music at my disposal with a, with a click of the button like I have now on my iPhone. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's a lot like when people talk about like Blockbuster. It's not necessarily that like going back and renting videos or when you would go into Blockbuster and like all the Jurassic Parks or True Lies were sold out or rented out. Like Netflix is a lot better now in a sense, right? Because you can then just, everything's at home. You don't have to get up and leave. You have no late fees, that kind of stuff. Blockbuster was nice for an era and a time, but we've kind of made, I guess, lack of, for lack of a better term, progress with Netflix. Right. I, I don't find that... Um, I mean, I do think that there is a danger in, in the loss of physical media. 
There is, yeah. And I, I still do occasionally buy like Blu-rays now or CDs. Um, I buy vinyl. I just got uh, Eric just reissued uh, At the Gate, Slaughter of the Soul mm-hmm. on their Dynamic Range collection, which is great because you can you know you can listen to the record uh, without the the compression that the later remasterings have. But you know, to be honest, like I'm I'm probably going to listen to Slaughter of the Soul on Spotify more often just because it's it's you know you're you're tied to the record player if you're going to listen to the record player. Uh, so again, there are trade-offs. I think physical media are uh, necessary. I don't. I, I I wouldn't want everything to be digitalized, digitized, but I guess it's going to be. Yeah. It, there's a weird way where you can almost fight the future. There's the the line that you have in the park is full of people. It's a Prince-related poem. And the line was, it took me an hour to travel one hour into the future. It's terrible here. Right? So even yeah. like traveling like one hour into the future, <laughs> it's still like, uh, it, it's still like, there's no, there was no hope or I guess no progress like you were saying. And so it's just kind of like the darkness is still there. Yeah, right. You know, it's, the, it's things aren't improving, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that's certainly the case. Uh I, I have a sense that one thing about aging that, that well, the worst thing about aging probably <laughs> for me anyway, is that your, your, your experience of time speeds up, mm-hmm. which is the opposite of how it should be. You have less time, so you should, you should experience it more slowly. But in fact, uh, 10 years seems like, uh, you, know, remember, you know, when you were, when you were 20, 22, 10 years seemed like an eternity. Yeah. Uh, and now I think about 10 years ago and it seems like it was yesterday. This is a totally banal and, and common observation, but, but, but I feel it, you know, in a way that I, that I didn't before. And it, and it sucks. So part of the, the complaining about the future is, is not that the future is, is, is so horrible, although it is, uh, as that it's it's here you know mm-hmm. I, I, everything's always the future because uh, all of a sudden I'm going to be 50 then I'm going to be 60 and then it, it, uh, I, I just I don't know if other people have this experience in their late 40s where they're just like holy shit the world is um, well I don't know I don't know let's, let's not talk about my midlife crisis for Christ's sake <laughs> okay you know, what's wrong but with I, me? I, but I think too like one of the factors that as you get older that ages you is pop culture because you write a lot about pop culture. Um, like the other day I was listening to Sirius XM and they were saying that uh, the U2 album Octum Baby is going to be 30 years old. And it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't feel like it's a 30-year-old album. It doesn't feel like it came out last week either. But I was like, are you sure it's 30 years old? And so it's just like pop culture has those anniversaries where like this album came out like 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And you re- you see these marks, benchmarks of where you've aged, and it's like I've been with that album for thirty years. That seems weird. That's a weird chunk of time. Yeah, that that just happened uh, to me with some. Ooh, what the hell record was it? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. All the records. 
all the records that, that seem to me like the records of my uh, of my youth, you know, uh, Nirvana uh, was fair. Yeah, it's been uh, been thirty years, and there's something to the notion that the music that you hear when you're young sticks with you in a in a more profound way, but. To be honest, I don't understand how people get old and stop listening to to popular music. I don't, you know, like I don't see Olivia Rodrigo and Billie Eilish to take like two of the biggest stars in the world. They seem to me like like um, terrific, terrific musicians who are who are making great music. And I don't understand how it is that you turn fifty and then you're you know you're just listening to the same Leonard Skinner album over and over again. Mm-hmm. I know that a lot of people that happens to, but, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's always baffled me. I know that a lot of people don't do keep up, but it, it baffles me that, uh, and then, and then there's the concomitant dismissal of such music as, as, um, as not as authentic as the music of your youth, which is, which is pure, uh, just, just pure ideology. <laughs> Yeah. It's ridiculous. I think the all people... of a sudden that the pop stars aren't making good music for the first time, <laughs> and it just happens to be when you're turning, uh, when you're uh, hitting your midlife. <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah. think so. Timing. Yeah, I I think that what you're talking about with the the people who stop listening to music, I think there is a certain point where they they stop like quote unquote digging through the stacks the way we used to in uh, record shops and CD shops and other places like that, whereas right. like. Um, you know, it's a lot easier now to just like put on Spotify, listen to like Coldplay or whatever it was you listened to when you were a teenager, and then you're done. You know what I mean? Rather than game to... game theory, they, Spotify keeps recommending the stupid playlist that it made. I don't know what I listened to, to 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 make it do this, but they want me to listen to a playlist that has game theory, fucking the DBs, REM, uh, all you know, that. I'm just like. I, there's there's some good stuff on on there. That's fine, but I'm not gonna go walking around listening to game theory. Come on, <laughs> right? And I think that also makes it harder to find the new stuff as well, right? I think that's the the people lose that bandwidth as they get older, either because they have uh, jobs and responsibilities, or they have kids or whatever it is. They lose that bandwidth that you had when you're a teenager to dig through stuff and to find stuff and to listen to stuff. Because the weird thing with music is, yeah, a song is only three minutes or five minutes long, so you can consume it a lot faster than, like, a novel or a movie. But for it to really kind of get its hooks into your uh, heart and into your soul, you need to kind of listen to it several times at different emotional times, uh, different experiences, like either, like, go to a concert or go on a road trip. Like, it needs to be part of your life. You need to incorporate it into your life. And I think that's where a lot of people break down. A lot of people know Rihanna, but don't necessarily have any like deep connections or associations with Rihanna's music. If that makes sense. Yeah, that's true. There's, there's one of the things about being tied to physical media is that let's say, let's say, you know, uh, I get the new whatever uh, Public Enemy album, or uh, I remember I was into the Afghan Wigs in '93, oh, wow. and yeah. then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a that's old. <laughs> uh, they follow me on on Twitter now. Hello, Afghan Wigs, if you're listening. 
Uh, and because it's physical media, you and you and you have a limited number of of tapes or CDs at your disposal. You you end up listening to them a lot. Yeah. And now I don't do that as much. I, I listen around a lot more. Like I'm not going to play, you know, sour 40 times in a row. Whereas when Al, Al, Afghan Wicks came out with Gentleman, I just popped it in my Walkman and I play one side, turn it over, play the other side, start it over, keep doing that. But what I do, I have found, is I'll listen to the songs like 40 times in a row. Mm-hmm. When Blank Space, first time I heard Blank Space, Taylor Swift, 1989. Yeah. I was on Spotify and had my headphones on. It was like it was like midnight, and I stayed up for two hours just listening to it over and over again. I did that recently with Deja Vu by Olivia Rodrigo, mm-hmm. and I do find this is something that uh, that my my friend uh, Joshua Clover uh, has been saying for years. I do find that one thing about the digitization of music is that the album as such has become less of a meaningful category. Correct. You know, I'm not even sure if I've listened to every song on Sour yet. Yeah, and that's what I was saying with, like, Rihanna's music, right? Like, a lot of people know Rihanna's music, but you couldn't ask people to, like, name an album (laughs) that she's put out, right? Because it's just all kind of like one big blend of, like, pop songs that she's put out. So you like what you like, maybe you hear it here or there in a club or something like that, and then you just kind of discard the rest. There isn't any, like, emotional attachment or to, like, nobody's ever going to sit down and, like, rank Rihanna's best albums the way, like, they do with older <laughs> bands. Yeah, yeah. Like, you see all the time, like, some side will have, like, Judas Priest albums ranked worst to best. Mm-hmm, right. I do do that with, like, Taylor, though. I've done that with Taylor because reputation has to come last. All right. What comes first then? Uh, red. For me, it's red. Okay. Followed very closely by 1989 and Fearless. Mm-hmm. But yeah, red. Oh, the oh, red comes out this week. Or the Taylor's version of red. Is it this week or next week? Anyways, it's a 10-minute long version of All Too Well. I'm a little trepidatious because I love that song so much. Does it need to be longer? <laughs> Does it need to be longer than November Rain? We're not sure. That's valid point. But I want to circle back to Walkman because this conversation. Yeah, started... we should talk about poetry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, no, no, I do, but it it's connected because I am curious. Then, like, you talk about like physical media versus digital media. Um, you talk about like the old school uh, records and old school music versus like contemporary music. Like, do you also draw any like distinctions in terms of like highbrow and lowbrow? Because your your poetry is like. Uh, populated with a lot of like pop culture so, or do like and poetry tends to be like a highbrow uh, medium I guess so but do you draw any of those distinctions or do you just feel that they don't apply well I mean that's also a, that's a question that I get asked all the time and I think I want to flip it around and, and like ask why do, why are people interested in that question because I have to confess that it doesn't interest me the, the distinction between high and low literature, it seems to me, is obviously a distinction that was um, that was created in order to uh, separate art as, as a sort of pristine sphere unto itself from the realm of the commercial. Mm-hmm. And I just don't believe that that's you know I'm not I'm not an idealist. I don't think that art is 
in some special little sphere where it, it uh, is exempt from the uh, from the contradictions of the political and economic systems in which it is created. So um, I think the more interesting question is why did people invent the division between high and low culture in the first place? And I'm not someone who is invested in such a distinction. That's fair. Yeah, I only ask because I'm curious about how it's received and I'm curious about taste. Taste obviously mm-hmm. influences a lot of like culture, right? Yeah. Uh, like you were saying before, like, you know, people will listen to like, they grow up in the 80s and listen to a lot of 80s music. And then by the time they're in their 40s or even 50s, they kind of stop growing. They don't really add new music. They don't listen to the new Taylor Swift or something like that. And so I get that um, because taste also, it limits you, right? It opens up a lot of doors and you get to go down to a lot of really cool avenues, but it can also limit you if you don't have a lot of curiosity with your taste. Yeah, I think you have to be, I mean, taste is, for one, you know, as as the saying goes, uh, um, you cannot argue about taste. There's just, you know, if someone doesn't like Taylor Swift's voice, Mm -hmm. then I'm I'm not going to be able to convince them that Taylor Swift is, uh, there there are artists I think, yeah, they're probably pretty interesting. I just have no, I'm not, I'm sure that they're great artists. They do nothing for me. That's just how it is. So there's that. But then I think there's also often a confusion of taste with a, a sort of objective um, judgment. So, you know, people will say, oh, I listen to everything but country. And it's just assumed that that means they have good taste because we all know that country music is just sort of uh, uh, ridiculous redneck backwater. <laughs> and it has nothing to do with country music. Country music is a vital and I think more interesting genre of popular music than certainly than than anything that's coming out of the indie rock scene. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, again, the problem isn't taste. The problem is that people are, and of course everyone is guilty of this to some extent, people are mistaking their taste uh, and, and often, quite often their taste, which signals some kind of class distinction or some other kind of distinction uh, Almost like or, a verdict. Yeah, for some kind of um, objective uh, reality that that is again based in an in invidious um, separation of, of of art and non-art. I just I don't buy it. But yeah, taste is taste. You know, I don't like uh, there there are artists. If you like them, that's fine. I'm not going to be like, how can you like that artist? But mm-hmm. they don't do anything for me. You know, that's cool. And so the book is Walkman. It's a poetry collection. It's out now. And I like that the the poem itself ends, uh, just to kind of wrap up what we've been talking about, with um, there was a song that I didn't know would be the last song I would ever play on a Walkman. I listened to it like it was just an old song. Uh, any old song because it was and that's kind of like it, it's a fitting way to like end the poem but also like it's true we don't also know like we don't always are, are, we're not always aware of these like moments we tend to think of profound moments as like weddings and funerals or you graduate from university or college or something but there's also these little moments too that we don't always recognize as profound in the moment when it happens 
So I like yeah. I like that uh, ending of Walkman that you didn't know that was gonna be the last song that you were ever gonna play on this Walkman. Yeah, that's exactly right. There are most of life is 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 moments that you aren't gonna you know. Or I should say most of the moments in our life that mean something are moments that aren't that that don't necessarily seem at the time as if they're going to be particularly meaningful. Mm-hmm. So, well. This was particularly meaningful for me. We got, we covered quite a bit. Uh, we covered like uh, no smashing com- no smashing pumpkins, uh, punk rock, uh, anger poetry, and the collection. The latest collection is Walkman, and it's out now. Uh, thank you, Michael, like for hanging out and like <laughs> sharing a little bit about your midnight midlife crisis. And as well as some of your uh, musical adventures, as well as your top five as well. That was a big, hard question. Yeah, thank you, Sammy. It was a pleasure. All right. You take care. Have a good day. Enjoy the Earl Grey. Yo, that was Michael Robbins, and Walkman is his poetry book. Based on our conversation, but most especially based on the poetry, Michael is having a spiritual breakdown on the side of the information highway. So what good are poetic details and observations anyways in a world where clocks only indicate dark times? There's so much value with skepticism. There's so much value in heresy. We used to believe the earth was flat. We used to believe that the earth was the center of the universe. In medicine, we held erroneous beliefs that harmed countless individuals. It is typically through skepticism, the sharp, distinct rejection of the popular narrative that we establish new hopes. It is with a compelling heresy that we discover an alternative path. It turns out the sun is the center of the universe. If it wasn't for heretics sparked by Galileo, we'd be blindly accepting the word of the Roman Catholic Church. And like a flat earth, you know how terrible road trips would be with a flat earth? Walkman is a poetic catalog of what we have lost, what we have failed to notice we have lost. It's like when you visit your old neighborhood and it's been years since you've been there. The convenience store two blocks over is gone. People have moved out or died. It's not the same. Getting older means you spend more time mourning. And though a lot of Michael's despair comes from the relentless consumption of capitalism, yet as you heard, all the music that we happily discussed is incredible. Capitalism has also given us a lot of remarkable popular culture, says the host of a podcast where he just interviewed a poet. Hmm. It's an interesting tension that is best resolved in the poetic sphere, where devastation and elation are two emotions that can sit side by side. You try cramming those two emotions through the Hallmark card and see how it works out. Check out his book, Walkman. We also mentioned his other book, uh, Aliens vs. Predator. That's another one too I highly recommend. You can follow me on all the socials since we're talking about capitalism. My Summer Lair for Twitter, IG, and Facebook. My Summer Lair for all three. Twitter, IG, and Facebook, My Summer Lair. Thank you so much for listening to me in a Netflix world. Walkman, yo.